Thank you once again. Good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. Our lesson today deals with what we call homotheology, or the doctrine of sin. This comes logically from the study of anthropology, the origin of man, and the doctrines that deal with the trinity of theology, Christology, and pneumatology. Our lesson today and tomorrow, or the next time you hear this broadcast, whenever it's broadcast, perhaps a week from the day in many stations, would deal with the subject of homotheology, the matter of sin as it is related to God and to man. And uh, when we talk about this, of course, we'll talk about uh, its relationship to God and man as a tripartite being. You remember that God was a trinity, and we uh, studied this very thoroughly in about 20 lessons on the Godhead, and we learned that man was made in the image of God. So we'll have some recourse to the fact that in dealing with sin, we have to discuss sin as it is related to the Creator, as it is related to God. The doctrine of the Trinity, far from being a Romish or Papish doctrine uh, invented by North Africans, is a Bible doctrine found in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We have the oneness, oneness, uh, oneness people putting out this rubbish about there being just one, the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have uh, Pastor Rutherford and Judge Russell putting out the nonsense that there are three separate ones, and we're not too sure about the third one. But the truth of the matter is, the Godhead is the Godhead, and we've clearly discussed this in more than 20 lessons dealing with the subject matter. It is always the case that when we put on a broadcast of this nature, late tuners inners, that is very good English, but that's what they are, they tune in late, that is, they pick up it at the 40th or 60th broadcast, write a long series of letters trying to explain all their particular private interpretation by changing the Word of God and changing their verses and running to the Hebrew and running to the Greek and generally wasting your time and God's time, everybody else's time, because they didn't listen to the broadcast. Now, we covered the matter of the Trinity so thoroughly you couldn't possibly have missed it when we talked about the person of God in the Old Testament, the existence of God. God is a balanced being. God is a Trinity. The names of God, the Father of God, the God, the silence of God. We talked about the uh, deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, his attributes, his sinlessness, his character, we talked about the personality of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, the names of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and actually coming to something like uh, 60 broadcasts, we went into the matter of the Trinity in depth so you couldn't possibly have had any mistaken notions about the nature of the Godhead. Uh, consequently, man made in the uh, image of God is a Trinity, and with this we must deal when discussing this matter of sin. In the conclusion of our last lesson in studying anthropology, we learned that man had a body, soul, and a spirit. There are two passages that bring this out very clearly, that man has three parts, that man himself is a trinity. And the first of these is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse states very clearly, unless you get a new Bible and change it, that man has three separate distinct parts. The distinction may be slight, but they exist nevertheless. Body, soul, and spirit. The only way you can get rid of this is get you a new translation that will match the heresies of your particular denomination and get your own reading. The modern apostate fundamentalist says take the reading that you prefer, which, of course, is the uh, road map for anarchy. You take the one you prefer, you'll lose the revelation. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit out of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So man has a soul and he has a spirit. Some people teach the soul and spirit are two words meaning the same thing. 
but this verse definitely tells us they're divisible, and beside that, the spirit is like wind, and the soul is like a body shape. It is true that many passages of Scripture seem the term soul and spirit might be used interchangeably, but the other passages were this absolutely impossible. This brings us to the matter of the mentally sick trying to explain the Bible, especially the handicapped, uh, unsaved elders, teachers, priests, bishops, popes, ministers, and deacons who are uh, playing the game without a full deck and think because if a dog has hair and a cat has hair and they're both mammals and quadrupeds that a dog is a cat. There are many things, similar things about dogs and cats. Uh, there are many similar things about birds and serpents. That doesn't mean they're the same, or in the case of Darwin, it doesn't even mean they're kin, as they say. Now, briefly, let's get the distinction. The Spirit gives a man God consciousness, the ability to uh, communicate with God. God breathed in the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. This word is ruach in the Old Testament for wind or air. It's the word pneuma for wind or air in the New Testament, and there could be no doubt about it, because in John chapter 3, Jesus said, The wind bloweth where it listeth, I heard the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Again, about the Spirit of God, in Ezekiel chapter 37, uh, God told Ezekiel the prophet to prophesy to the four winds and say, Come, old breath, breathe upon these slain. And the Spirit of God entered into them. You people know about uh, pneumonia, trouble with your wind, pneumatic drills, air-driven drills, compressed air. So surely you know the word pneuma means wind, and the Old Testament, the same word is used for wind and spirit. Someone has said that man is dust inbreathed by deity. A.T. Pearson said the spirit receives impressions of outward and material things through the soul and body, but it belongs to a higher level. God is a spirit, and the spirit of man is the part that resembles God most, although, of course, the unsaved man has in him a dead spirit. Uh, the spirit itself bear witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, but, of course, that is after our spirit has been born again. Ecclesiastes 12.7 says that at death the body goes to the dust and the spirit goes back to God. So, obviously, they're not the same. In Ecclesiastes 3.21, we read, Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? So the spirits are not the same. The spirit of man at death goes upward to God, the spirit of the beast goes downward. Well, the soul of a man, of course, goes to heaven or goes to hell. The soul of the beggar went to Abraham's bosom, the soul of the rich man went to hell. So at death, man goes to three different places, proving that man is tripartite. I mean, at death in the Old Testament, they went to hell or Abraham's bosom. In the New Testament, they go to heaven or hell. And, of course, the change is obviously due to the change in the status of man due to a completed redemption by the finished blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, where a saved man no longer had to go to an intermediate state. There are four spirits delineated in the Word of God. These spirits are the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Satan, called the unclean spirit, the spirit of man, simply called the spirit of man, the human spirit, and then we have the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth. This means quite naturally and quite logically that all men have the same spirit until they're born again. It's the spirit of man, an unsaved, unregenerate, dead and trespassed and sin, darkened, unenlightened spirit. This must be born again, for that which is born of the spirit is spirit, the Gospel of John says. So when Adam sinned, of course, uh, it was his spirit that died not his soul. The modern teaching by uh, Pastor Rutherford and Judge Rutherford and the vast tract societies and the Armstrong British Israelites is that merely Adam died physically, which of course is the uttermost of nonsense. You couldn't get any more ridiculous if you tried. 
The Lord told him he'd die in the day that he ate thereof. And throughout the New Testament, you find the constant references to the fact that the unsaved man is dead in trespass and sin, the flesh and spirit are defiled, the will has been enfeebled, we are utterly destitute of any godlike quality. The only thing left is the old spirit down there. It's a dead spirit that has to be born again. Now, the spirit, then, is obviously non-shaped. It has no form, and it is likened to wind. Then we have, of course, the soul of man. The soul of the man is the least thing un mis least understood about the things of man, and there are no textbooks published by Zondervan or Erdman's or Baker or any commentaries recommended by any Christian school that can tell you what a soul is. The common teaching of the faculty members of the apostate fundamental schools is the soul is something stuck away in your body somewhere that comes out at death. This is some more nonsense. You are plainly told in Revelation chapter 6 that a soul has a voice and can wear clothes. You are told in Luke chapter 16 a voice has a mouth and a tongue. You are told in Revelation chapter 20 that souls can sit on thrones, therefore they have bodies and they have waists and they have legs. The ancient Greek philosophers teaching about the soul, of course, is what is taught at the Christian colleges and universities, which, of course, is a biblical heresy of the most outrageous sort. A soul in the Bible has arms, legs, fingers, hands, eyes, nose, mouth, and a tongue. And the Bible speaks about souls in hell weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, this means the modern concept of the soul of man, borrowed from the Greek philosophers Anaximenes and Aximander, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Epictus, and the rest of them, is pagan uh, nonsense. The soul in the Bible has a bodily shape, and this bodily shape uh, is capable of burning forever because it is not a physical body. It is what we call a soulish body. It is a spiritual body that has arms and legs and so forth and so on, yet can't burn up. This explains a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, he couldn't tell. Obviously, he was standing there and looking and hearing and seeing, but he couldn't see any body there because the body he was standing in was not a physical body. Thus, the King James English often clears up the apostate Greek scholarship and fundamental scholarship of the modern apostate fundamentalists. And the fact that if you took the outstanding leading 50 fundamental leaders in America today and the outstanding 50 Bible teachers in America today who correct the King James Bible, Greek and Hebrew, none of them would have a basic concept about the part in them that got saved. After all, when they received Christ, their soul was saved, and after all these people talk about winning souls and getting souls saved, don't even know what a soul is. Not even a man getting up talking about what shall profit a man if he gained the whole world, lose his own soul, and then adopting the ancient Greek philosopher's heretical, evolutionary, Darwin, monkey man teaching that a soul is a peanut or a, uh, something you have in your mind or part of something in you that glues two stuff together or the self-conscious feeling of the emotions and all that nonsense. Your soul has a bodily shape. I mean, the Taoists and Buddhists and the Lama monks knew this a thousand years before Christopher Columbus. You people of the Bible ought to be able to catch up with them. The soul is self-conscious, shaped like a body. It stands for the individual personal life. In psychology, it's called the ego. And the psychiatrist, of course, borrows this word for a soul to make his money with. The word psychiatrist, psychosomatics, psychopolitics, psychoneurosis, psychotic, all come from the Bible word psyche, or psyche in the modern Greek, for the soul. The Bible speaks of a hungry soul, a weary soul, a thirsty soul, 
a grieved soul and a loving soul in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament the soul is stuck to the body. It is joined to the flesh. You will not find this in any of Watchman Nee's works or the works by uh, Caldwell or any of the works by uh, the modern uh, uh, Keswick Convention Group. And the reason why is having rejected the King James Bible, the authorized text, they simply don't know what they're talking about. One must remember the authorized King's Version English text is always far superior to any Greek or Hebrew text anybody has or the lexicons written for that text. And the men who spend their time in word studies, of course, always develop heresies because they dig down vertically into a text instead of out horizontally where scriptures compare with scripture. As one of these modern writers says, the soul seems to be the part of man midway between the body and the spirit, yet is not a mixture of the two, though at times it seems to take on characteristics of one or the other. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Another one says, the work of the soul is to coordinate the activities of the two diverse parts. That's hot air. Let me read, the soul is to keep the body as the lowest in subjection of the spirit the highest. And that's some more nonsense. Now this uh, nonsense put out in the commentaries, take any 22 at random, of course comes from the re reader or writer sitting in judgment on the King James text. For the modern apostate fundamentalist has decided to judge the Word of God. The Lord draws the blinds on him, and he has no advanced revelations beyond 1909. The old school free reference Bible with the notes of 1909, the works of Clarence Larkin, 1919, complete and summarize all the modern fundamentalist knows about the Word of God. Now, whatever else he finds out, he must get from a man who believed the King James Bible, the Word of God, to whom God showed something. Very often, these modern apostate fundamentalists will borrow this material and pretend they got it from the Greek or Hebrew, which, of course, is lying. They did nothing of the kind. The Holy Spirit honors the God-honored text, which he honored and preserved, and the revelation of what a soul is is found in the King James 1611 text, and there is not a recognized Greek or Hebrew scholar alive on the earth today within the sound of my voice. Who knew that before the printing of the commentary on Genesis in 1970? And if you don't believe it, check them out. In James 1.21, we receive which is able to, we find which is able to save your souls. In Psalm 49.8, for the redemption of their soul is precious. Luke 16 tells us the soul can be lost, the place of punishment. Men gamble their souls for a moment of pleasure. Christ says, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world, or lose his own soul? Or right, then the soul is a bodily shape inside your body, which in the Old Testament is stuck to the body, which is circumcised by a spiritual circumcision in the New Testament. You will find no major commentary written before 1970 that can tell you the soul was cut loose from inside the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, as every major commentary or writer or reader or... Bible teacher or scholar up to 1970, before he had access to the Bible Believer's Commentary series, was correcting the King James Bible, and therefore could not find the truth in regard to the first basic fundamental of salvation. And that is the fact when the Holy Spirit enters the body, he circumcises and cuts loose spiritually in something called an operation, the soul from the body. And this takes a place, of course, inside the man. Now, this accounts for the great and gross darkness that has descended over the Christian colleges and universities in the last 20 years. They have decided it is more important for them to maintain their standing as accredited to recognize institutions, and it is more important for them to assert their own authority than it is for them to please God and assert the authority of the Protestant Reformation text. Sensing the clouds on the horizon and the uh, shape of the handwriting on the wall, 
They have all decided to sit in judgment on the King James text and recommend two or three other translations so they themselves can be the final authority. Having done this, the Lord turned out the lights, closed the door, and locked the building. And this explains why on the very first fundamental of the faith, the spiritual circumcision of the soul from the body cannot be found in any commentary or any devotional handbook or any series of Bible studies published by any fundamentalist or conservatives up until 1970. If you find it after 1970, you will find they, will, they got the original version in the Bible Believer's Commentary on Genesis, published at that time, written by a man who believed the King James Bible from cover to cover. Now, the body of man, of course, is the thing that we're all acquainted with, we know about without any problem. The spirit gives man a God-consciousness, the soul gives man self-consciousness, the body gives a man world-consciousness. The body of man, our flesh, bones, and blood were made of the dust of the ground originally, and this explains why we rot and disintegrate and go back to the dirt. This is the part of man with which we're most familiar, the physical part of man. David says in Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible tells us the body of man was formed from the dust of the earth. Dust is analyzed as contained 96 elements, and man also contains 96 elements, and they are identically the same ones, a wonderful proof of creation. To mention some of the 96, calcium, carbon, chlorine, fluorine, hydrogen, iodine, iron, magnesium, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, potassium, silicon, and sodium. When man fell, like we studied in our last lesson in pronouncing the curse upon man after the fall, he said, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return to the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and the dust thou shalt return. The body has five senses. It can see it, it can hear it, it can taste it, it can touch it, it can smell it. It is not until a man is born again with the Holy Spirit of God that he gets a sixth sense. This sixth sense is a spiritual sense. And this sixth sense enables a man to love things that he cannot see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. Of course, in the eyes of the Darwin evolutionist or the psychopolitician, the Soviet change agent, or UNESCO, or the insiders, or the Illuminati, or whatever you want to call them, this makes the saved man psychotic, or at least a schizo, uh, to which we may answer quite uh, sanely and intelligently, baloney. I mean, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. And if we love New Jerusalem and the Lord Jesus Christ, having never seen him or it, having never tasted him or it, having never touched him or it, having never smelled him or it, having never heard him or it, it simply means we have a sixth sense, a sonar or built-in radar equipment, which our unsaved compatriots do not have. And they're not going to appreciate my saying that a bit. All ecstasy, pain, sensation, or ability is expressed in and through the physical body. And after the fall, the body becomes a slowly dying, death-doomed body because the spirit in it has already died. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. Ever since the fall of man, man is born with an appointment for death. And one of the ancient philosophers said, until you're ready to die, you're not ready to live. Death is the big appointment that you must face. It's the one you, you must be prepared for. And if you're not prepared for meeting death, then you are in trouble, because that's where you're going. Now, in relation to this tripartite nature of man, the dictionary calls sin a transgression, evil, a violation of an accepted moral, religious, or social code. 
sin is any lack of conformity to the character of God, whether an act or a state. That is why an atheist can do nothing but live in sin all his life. So that's why they're all do-gooders. Have you noticed how atheists are all these humanitarian benefactors? You notice that? Kind of bring in the, you know, the Hegel's thesis. <laughs> they're all trying to atone for the sins. Sin is a hopelessly incurable disease of the soul. It's characteristic of the old nature. Sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4 says. Sin can be an act, like sins. The breaking of a law or commandment is a sin, and Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. Sin can be a state, the fallen state of man without righteousness, the natural condition of every man, and sin is a nature. A man is born dead in trespass and sin, and according to the New Testament, he is by nature a child of wrath, and he's a child of disobedience. That is, the Bible picture of man is contrary to the picture given by every major religious leader and political leader in the world. The Bible picture of man is totally negative. And that's why broadcasts like these are rarely heard, and after they've been heard for a while, sometimes they drop out of sight real quickly. The world system trying to live and die without Christ and get along without Christ must attain a, a pitch peak a mountaintop of morale built in, convincing itself it's all right when it's not. Paul, the great negative thinker of Christianity, after telling his congregation to think upon those things who were pure and lovely and had any virtue, said Christ died for us to save us from this present evil world. The same apostle that said, Love thinketh no evil, and love does this, and charity does that. That great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, Love of every cowardly Christian in America. That same apostle said, Before you were saved, you are without God, without hope, alone in the world, dead in trespass and sin, under the wrath of God, by nature a child of wrath and a child of disobedience, with your conscience and your mind defiled, and your feet swift to shed, hand to shed blood, and swift uh, feet swift to run in mischief, and darkened, alone in the world, without hope, without God. Isn't it strange how these little sissy Christians have such a such a tremendous love of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, <laughs> and never can fool with Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Did you ever notice that? Did you, know that, did you ever notice that silence about Romans 1, 2, and 3 that falls like the shades of night over some of these charismatic meetings? Did you ever notice that? It is not expedient in the Antichrist program for man to take a negative view of what he's about to do it is expedient in the devil's program to have all men think highly of each other so they can get together. And when they get together, he'll be the king of this world. Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 17. The conspiracies often mentioned by people such as uh, Robert Welch and John Birch and Gary Allen and other writers are very factual, and they're very real, and they're very right. The thing is they don't go all the way and tell you what's going on. What's going on is this world is preparing to enthrone a man from outer space. That's what's going on. And to do this, they have to get together. And to get together, they have to be leveled to one mongrel, passive, Ottoman, classless society. And that's where politics, UNESCO, and the United Nations enter. And the Illuminati with Weisskopf, Weishaupt, and all the rest of the boys and girls. That's what's going on. Sin entered the world through Adam. It originated with Satan. This is explained in James chapter 1, where we read, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. It originated with Satan in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14. It entered the world through Adam, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. The facts of sin are 
given in Genesis 3, but you couldn't miss them. The sinner, first of all, listens to the slanders against God and doubts what God said. The first step in the sin of any nation is to doubt what God said. The first sin and the step of any downfall into sin by any college or university or school or church is to doubt what God said. The first sin committed on this earth was to subtract from what God said, and the second sin on this earth was to add to what God said. Therefore, if you have any Bible published since 1800, you have a Bible that is made between 20,000 and 36,000 changes in what God said. Therefore, you're already over the hill. It's just a matter of time for the barrier. Sin then looks at what God has forbidden. Sin began with a look in the case of Eve, in the case of David, in the case of Achan. The light of the body is the eye. Then it lusts for what God has prohibited. The Bible says, Thou shalt not covet. And it finally disobeys a direct commandment of God. If you want to read the downward plunge of the Gentile nations into the Stygian abyss of darkness and moral depravity, you read Romans chapter 1, where the whole history is given of transgression, which is the overstepping of the law, of iniquity, an act inherently wrong or forbidden, of error, the departure from the right, of missing the mark, the failure to meet the divine standard, trespassing, the intrusion of the self-will in the sphere of God's authority, lawlessness, which is spiritual anarchy, death, a failure in duty, the sin of omission, unbelief, an insult to the divine veracity of God, an evil heart of unbelief. The list of sins found in Exodus and 1 Corinthians include idolatry, cursing, Sabbath-breaking, homosexuality, disrespect to parents, murder, adultery, stealing, lying, covetousness, effeminate, masturbation, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, maliciousness, envy, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, lawlessness, disobedient, unholiness, profanity, whoremonger, kidnapping, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, lasciviousness, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, strife, sedition, heresy, reveling, evil thoughts, and evil eye, and foolishness. There are over 50 different sins mentioned in the Word of God in Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, and Mark 7. Sin cannot be hidden. Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. The results of sin are death, the losing of the soul, condemnation, guilt, perdition, shame, remorse, punishment, suicide, eternal fire, hell, and the lake of fire. And the only remedy for sin is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, blessed God, that taketh away the sin of the world. And you can call sin privation, error, mistake, uh, lack of adjustment, or lack of appreciation of value, or a concept of reality, or any of the God-forsaken lying drummed up by behaviorists and gestalt psychologists from the depraved work of the degenerate Sigmund Freud, but sin is still sin, the wage of sin is still death, and inflation hasn't changed those wages a bit. Be sure your sin will find you out, and if you're on the road to hell, don't forget that Christ died the just for the unjust, and bore your sins in his own body on the cross, that you being dead to sin might live unto righteousness, for in him there is no sin who did no sin. May the Lord bless you, and good day.